Can you think of a dramatic conversion story? A story of a, a notorious sinner repenting of their sins and coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the most dramatic conversion story that I've heard of in the, in the past uh, decade or so is of a man by the name of Ender Pekher. Uh, Ender was a member of my parents' church when they served as missionaries, missionaries in southeast Turkey uh, in Diyarbakir. Uh, Ender was a, a Kurdish terrorist in the PKK. That was uh, an armed guerrilla movement, uh, political uh, movement against the Turkish government. And in the midst of serving in the PKK, Ender uh, heard of the... The good news of Jesus Christ, he repented of his sins, and he entrusted in Christ. He abandoned Islam, he abandoned his life as a terrorist, and he turned himself into the Turkish police. He was convicted of his crimes, and he served his prison sentence. While he served in prison, he was uh, severely beaten, but he also preached the gospel, and two of his fellow inmates came to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when they were all released, uh, he went back to this Protestant church uh, in Diyarbakir, Turkey, and they were, they were baptized. Uh, they, they came to trust the Lord Jesus Christ because of Ender's witness to them. Uh, after some time, Ender was uh, called to serve in the Turkish military. And after his service, he returned back to that church in Diyarbakir, and that church sent him out as a church planter to plant a church in Mardin, Turkey. Uh, he, he went to Mardin, and there was a uh, disheveled uh, Orthodox church there, Syrian Orthodox church. It was in the hands of, of a group of people who owned the facility, and he started a Bible study with them. And they decided that since he knew the Bible and could teach it, that they should give the church to him. So they gave this church to him. It's been in disuse or disrepair for some 50 years. And now that Syrian Orthodox church is a Protestant church that is proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Ender's conversion is, and God's subsequent work through him is surprising uh, that God would do such amazing things. But we really shouldn't be surprised by these kinds of things. These are the exact kinds of things that the Lord loves to do. He loves to save sinners, those who are in rebellion against them. And he loves to make them his servants, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning, as we've already thought about in the course of our service. We're going to think about this from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. So if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. It's on page 917, I think, of the Bibles provided. Here we're resuming our study in the book of Acts, and as we do, you should remember what Acts is about. Acts tells the continuing story of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as He's risen and reigning. He works and ministers through His disciples and by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the very first chapter of Acts, Jesus set the program for what would unfold in the book. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we learn that Jesus, uh, His disciples would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. In the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, we, we see this ministry in and around Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, the, the ministry of sharing this message about Jesus, it goes out beyond Jerusalem. Uh, Saul persecutes uh, believers there, and the church scatters, and the gospel spreads to Samaria. It goes to the desert, to Azotus, and to Caesarea. And so as we're seeing unfold in the book of Acts, Jesus was right. His disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In our, our last study of Acts, you'll recall that we focused in on Philip's ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch. God was concerned to save someone who was outside of his kingdom, someone who wasn't a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, as we open Acts 9, we see that God is concerned 
not just to save those who are outside of his kingdom, but even to save those who are opposed to his kingdom. Saul's conversion story is where God saves his enemy, Saul, who's persecuting the church. It's so significant in the book of Acts uh, that we see it three times in the book. On three occasions, we learn that Saul, a persecutor, has been transformed into Saul, the preacher of God's grace. In other words, God is concerned to make this enemy a faithful servant of his gospel. And so if if you're looking for a single sentence, what summarizes the, the text that we're looking at together this morning, that would be it. God saves his enemies and makes them his servants for the spread of his gospel. God saves his enemies and makes them his servants for the spread of his gospel. If you're taking notes this morning, we should have two simple points for the outline of the rest of the sermon. Number one, God saves his enemy. He saves his enemies. And number two, God makes us his servants. And I hope that as we think about Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31 this morning, that your heart will be encouraged by God's grace and his pursuit of you and saving you. I hope that God's saving grace to you in Jesus Christ will energize you to proclaim his saving grace to others. Let's begin with our first point. God saves his enemies. And as we do, follow along as I read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him in Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. We'll stop there now. 
Um, these verses, they chronicle the salvation that Saul receives as he is confronted by the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul, you see here, is changed from an enemy of God who, to one who has been especially chosen by God to carry the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. It's a radical transformation, a dramatic conversion. God's salvation of his enemies is good news for us. That's what we need to be encouraged and comforted by as we consider Saul's salvation. God's word is true when it says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, or some translations say while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That Saul is an enemy of Jesus is beyond doubt. You see that first little word there in, in, in our text, that little word still in verse 1, reminds us that Saul has been an enemy of Jesus and his people before. If you were to turn back a page to the end of Acts chapter 7, you would see in verse 58 of Acts chapter 7 that when a Christian named Stephen was being stoned for his bold proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, Saul was there. He was keeping watch over the garments of those who were stoning Stephen. Uh, Luke was sure to note, you see there in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, that Saul approved of his execution. It's not by accident that a great persecution arose on that day. Whereas Acts chapter 8 verse 3 tells us, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women. Luke means to shock us by this. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. And then later in his life, Saul provided his own testimony of how he was a, a persecutor of Jesus' church. In Acts chapter 22 verse 4, he says this, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. A little later, in that same chapter, in Acts chapter 22, verse 19, he confessed that in one synagogue after another, he imprisoned and beat those who believed in Jesus. He personally raised his fist against Christians and he struck them. Then in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 to 11, Saul tells us that he was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He went on to say that he locked up many of the saints in prison and that they were put to death. Multiple Christians were killed under Saul's persecution. He cast his vote against them. He confessed that he raged in fury against them and persecuted them even to foreign cities. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he confessed that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Saul, with everything that he had, he tried to stop the message of Jesus from being preached. But those who were believers were scattered and they went about preaching the word all the more. Through Acts 8, we've seen the gospel go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the desert to Azotus to Caesarea. And now we're discovering in verse 2 of Acts chapter 9 that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, even went to Damascus. There's a, even a disciple named uh, Ananias there. Saul was determined to see this messianic movement squashed. And Luke tells us that he was breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. And that, that language has the idea that he's, he's breathing in these threats, this hatred for God's people. It's like this hatred actually animates and gives him life. He hated the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's so filled with rage that he received written authority to arrest Christians or followers of the way, as they were sometimes called then, and bring them back to Jerusalem. You see, the, the leadership in Jerusalem, they had authority from Rome to, to kind of guard the bounds and borders of their religion. And so they entrust this authority to Saul. Now, now think about 
the kind of rage that Saul has to have to go on this mission. Damascus is 135 miles away. So he, he has to travel some 135 miles to arrest Christians. And once he gets them, he has to march them back 135 miles. Saul is motivated. He, he could not see how Christianity was compatible with Judaism. Saul, a thoroughgoing Jew himself, believed that God's Messiah would be a king who conquered Israel's oppressors. So, so Jesus, a, a crucified Messiah, was an utter impossibility in his mind. He had to put an end to what he saw as blasphemy. Saul, he had this legal authority to do it. And so he's operating within legitimate legal bounds. But I think this text should stand as a severe warning to those in governing authorities. You may have the power to persecute God's people, Christians, but make no mistake, in doing so, you're opposing God. It's never right nor safe to oppose Jesus and his gospel. Saul thought that what he was doing was right and righteous, but in truth, he was opposing the Son of God. And friends, here's a truth that we all need to come face to face with. Apart from God's saving intervention in Jesus Christ, we are opposed to God. Each one of us, apart from God's saving intervention in Jesus Christ, we are enemies of God. That's what the scriptures teach. So Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 teaches us that once we were all alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Man, in his natural state, is not neutral to God, but alienated, hostile, and an enemy of God. Now you, you might say to yourself, but I'm not a murderer like Saul. Yes, you are. According to the scriptures, you are. Friend, have you ever been angry with someone else? Be, be honest with yourself. Have you ever been angry with someone else? Well, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, then you've committed murder and you are liable to judgment. If you've been angry, you've committed murder in your heart and that makes you liable to God's judgment. You're just as rebellious as Saul. You're just as much an enemy of God as Saul. But the good news that we see here in Acts 9 is that God saves his enemies through Jesus. So turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. That's one perspective we might have on Saul, that we're, we're kind of nothing like him, but the truth is we're a lot like him. But there may be yet another way. Maybe you look at Saul. For some here this morning, you may not think that you're anything like Saul, but for others, you may think that you're too much like Saul. You may think that you're the vilest offender of God's law. You may think that you are beyond the reach and mercy of God's grace. You see that your sins have mounted up to the heavens, that you are drowning in them, that there is no way out, that you're enslaved to them, and you cannot believe that God might save you. Friend, you need to see here in Saul the mighty power of God. Saul is in the Bible to encourage a person like you to see that you are not beyond the reach of God's grace, that none are beyond the reach of God's grace. In the words of one Puritan minister, his mercy is greater than your misery. In fact, later on in his life, Saul would say this, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's what Saul, who we later know by the name Paul, says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I, I was a chief of sinners. 
I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of God's people. I obtained mercy so that exceedingly great sinners like me might be encouraged to believe in Jesus. And he has the power to say, your sin is no match for God's salvation. Fanny Crosby was right when she wrote, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Friend, you are not, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. The marvelous grace of our loving Lord is grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. The good news of the Bible is, is that God saves his enemies through Jesus. Believe that Jesus lived for you the righteous life that you have not lived. Believe that Jesus died for you, daring, uh, bearing the punishment of God's wrath against your sin in his death on the cross. Believe that Jesus was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be accepted as righteous in his sight. Friend, turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. That's the good news of our passage, that God saves enemies like you and me and Saul. It's especially what we see there in verses 3 to 6. It's a remarkable scene, isn't it? As Saul nears uh, Damascus, he is enveloped by a bright light. He's, he's knocked to the ground. One commentator says he's knocked off his high horse, and he hears the voice of the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus, he stops Saul. He's knocked to the ground. He confronts Saul. He reveals himself to Saul. He redirects Saul. When Jesus speaks to Saul and reveals himself, we need to recognize that once again, this is evidence that Jesus is alive, that he has risen from the dead, and that he is Lord. Twice the Lord Jesus calls Saul by name, and twice the Lord Jesus reveals that in persecuting Christians, Saul is persecuting Jesus himself. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's not just an enemy of the church. He is an enemy of Jesus. It's as if Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body. It's as if Jesus feels the persecuting and murderous blows that his body, the church, receives from the hand of Saul. Jesus, though he is ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus is so united to the church on earth that her experience is his. Saul has been persecuting the one who is risen and reigning. The one who has been vindicated by God by his resurrection of the dead. And this more than anything seems to show that Saul was on the wrong side. He was opposing God's Messiah. And make no mistake, Saul comes face to face with the risen Lord Jesus. Though we're not told it explicitly here in our text, just a little later in verse 17, and you can see in verse 27 as well, Ananias and Barnabas revealed that Saul saw Jesus on this road. Saw Saul Jesus. Seeing the Lord Jesus left Saul irreversibly changed. This makes Saul an eyewitness to the resurrection life of Jesus. It is part of what qualifies him to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a unique encounter with Jesus. Something that we will not experience in our lifetimes. Nevertheless, Saul's encounter with Jesus does have connections for everyone who has had a true and saving encounter with Jesus. A true and saving encounter involves Jesus confronting us in our sin and rebellion. Before Jesus comforts us with the forgiveness of our sins, he confronts us for being devoted to our sins. Maybe this is something that Jesus has done for you. Maybe in his wonderful mercy, mercy he has knocked you down off your high horse 
like he did with Saul. Maybe it was an illness in your life that Jesus used to help you see that you were in rebellion against God. Maybe it was the death of a loved one. Maybe it was an accident or legal trouble or a startling failure of some kind. Jesus may knock us down in a variety of ways, but it is a mercy from His gracious hand that He stops us in our tracks and says, no more, no more. Maybe Jesus is stopping you today. Maybe He's stopping you in this very moment. Maybe He's being so gracious to you right now. Friend, receive this loving confrontation from Jesus as a gift from His hand to say, stop being an enemy and come to me for salvation. Bow your soul to Him as Lord. A true and saving encounter involves Jesus confronting us in our sin and rebellion. And a true and saving encounter with Jesus involves Jesus revealing Himself to us in all of His saving power. He does that today by the the preaching of the gospel, by the sharing of the news that Jesus has lived a perfect, righteous life, that He's died an atoning death, and that He's been raised from the grave. Friend, Jesus has revealed Himself to you even in the course of this morning's service when we've sung the truth of God's Word and you've heard it proclaimed. A true and saving encounter with Jesus also involves Jesus redirecting our lives. That's what happens with Saul. Namely, He directs us away from our sin and to serving Him. When you have a true and saving encounter with Jesus, we we hear His voice, His commands in His Word, and we turn from our sin and we follow Him. And Saul certainly heard Jesus' commands to rise and enter the city. Notice that even here in the very first moments after his encounter with Jesus, that he had to start trusting. In verse 6, Saul was told to rise and enter the city and that he would be told what to do. He doesn't have any sense of what's going to happen from there on out. He had to trust Jesus. He had to trust Jesus' sovereign lead. This is the experience of many new Christians. They begin to follow Jesus and they, they start obeying his commands and they have no idea what is before them. And still, Jesus can be trusted. He will keep his people safe, savingly safe unto the end. But another factor that compounded this need to trust the Lord for Saul was that he was now blind. We're told that in contrast to Saul, while the men with him heard the voice of Jesus, they did not see the Lord Jesus. They were left stunned and speechless, and Saul was left without sight. He was blind. He was physically blind, but when you think about Saul's life, the truth is he was spiritually blind for quite some time, wasn't he? He refused to see Jesus. He rejected Jesus. He was spiritually blind. And spiritual blindness is the natural state of all, apart from Jesus' miraculous intervention. Later, Saul himself would write this about spiritual blindness in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. He would say, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. See, God gives us spiritual sight. Only God, in His intervening, miraculous, saving power, can give sight to His enemies to see what they have been spiritually blind to before. 
Recognize this about every conversion. Christian, recognize this about your conversion. It is a divine miracle. Your conversion may not be as dramatic as Saul's, but it is every bit as much a miracle as Saul's. This encounter left Saul physically blinded. And in this blindness, he had been left to ponder. He, He probably pondered his spiritual blindness to some degree. We know from verse 11 that he was also praying. It's clearly probably what he was doing for those three days while he waited for Ananias to come to him. He had a lot to think about. In being led by the hands to Damascus, the Lord was teaching him that this would be the character of his life as a Christian. Not that he would be physically blind for the rest of his life and be led around physically, but that he would need to be totally and utterly dependent upon the leading of the Lord. This is what the Christian life looks like. Holding on to the Lord Jesus and following his lead. The conversation that the Lord Jesus had with Ananias in verses 10 to 16, it confirms several things that we've been learning about Saul in the book of Acts. First, it serves to confirm Saul's history as an enemy of Jesus and his people. Ananias, you see there, he's undeniably nervous about meeting Saul. He knows Saul's history. He knows the very reason that he had set out for Damascus. He knows that he has authority to arrest Christians. He knows the evil that he has done and that he is capable of doing. But these verses... They serve not only to confirm Saul's history as an enemy of God and his people, but they also serve to confirm Saul's conversion. I mean, Ananias can't deny Jesus' saving power. He has experienced it himself. And here is the Lord Jesus talking to him directly, saying, Yes, it is true, Saul belongs to me. He is your brother in the faith. Now, sometimes conversions can be hard to believe, can't they? We'll think a little bit about this later on, but just on the face of it, we can understand Ananias' hesitancy. Still, Jesus not only reassures Ananias that Saul has been genuinely converted, but Jesus also informs Ananias that Saul will be God's special servant. As Acts 15 says, Saul will take the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul will spread the good news about Jesus and he will suffer for doing so. And this is enough for Ananias to obey the Lord Jesus and comfort Saul. And and I find the the words of verses 17 and 19, this scene so comforting. Ananias does exactly what the Lord Jesus tells him to do, but notice his first words to Saul. They were, brother Saul. Imagine how sweet those words must have been for, for Saul to hear. He was an enemy, but now he's welcomed. He would later have difficulty moving in and about Christians and churches. But here in his first encounter with Ananias, he hears words that reassure him that he's been invited into the Messiah's family, that he's a brother in the Lord Jesus. And that's what we are. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we're called to love one another and serve one another as such. All that Jesus promised to Saul and all that Jesus promised to do through Ananias, it takes place as Ananias lays his hands on Saul. Comforting words, Comforting touch. Just as Saul heard those words of love, he experienced this gesture of love from Ananias as well. Comfort in word and in deed. Saul's sight, it's miraculously restored. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the words of a hymn that virtually no Christian can forget, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm blind, but now I see. In these events, the Lord Jesus, he continues to confirm for both Ananias and for Saul, that God's enemy has truly been saved. 
Saul really does believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He even expresses that belief in his baptism. Right, as we've already thought about this morning, as we'll remember in Renee's baptism at the end of this service, the act of being baptized signifies our, our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a visible demonstration. We believe that Jesus died for us and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. It, it, it's a proclamation that we have been washed clean by God. It's a proclamation of our Savior's work. And it's how we show that we belong to Him and are included in His people. There's another sign of Saul's inclusion here too. He eats. right? He had been fasting. But now he eats and presumably Ananias joins him in this meal. In the scriptures, eating together signifies fellowship and unity. It's not a Baptist thing to eat together. It's a Christian thing. We Baptist church is very good at eating. So... Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to, to eat together, to have fellowship together, to show your unity with one another and your family with one another. Show hospitality to one another and show something of Christ's welcome to one another. Saul was also strengthened. This is certainly a, a reference to physical strength, but consider what we learn in the verses that follow. Luke is beginning to show us the trajectory that Saul will take as a servant of Jesus Christ. And in fact, we should turn to think about that now. Uh, let's turn and consider our, our second point, that God makes us His servants. God makes us His servants. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter uh, 19, the second half of verse 19 there, to the end of verse 31. For some days, He was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard Him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus. So the church, throughout all Judea, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. These verses, they, they teach us at least three things. One, Saul's service. They teach us about Saul's service. They teach us about Saul's suffering in his service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they teach us about the spread of the gospel. You see there in verse 20, Luke emphasizes that soon after Saul, after his conversion, he began serving the Savior. And the nature of his service is found there in verses 20 and 22. Saul proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God, and he proved that Jesus was the Christ. 
Previously, Saul wanted to punish those who proclaimed and proved such things. But now it is his joy to proclaim Jesus as God's son and prove that Jesus is God's Messiah. And in proclaiming that Jesus was the son of God, you see there in verse 20, Saul was declaring to all who would hear them that Jesus was and is fully God. That Jesus eternally lived in intimate fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He, he no doubt proclaimed that Jesus was a son who was different than Adam the son and different than Israel the son. We learn about in, in Genesis and Exodus, Matthew and Luke's gospel. Luke, uh, sorry, Saul no doubt proclaimed that where Adam and Israel failed as God's son, Jesus prevailed. Jesus was the faithful and unique son through whom sinners like Saul and us might share in the blessings and benefits of his sonship. In proving that Jesus was the Christ there in verse 22, Saul was setting about the task of showing that all of the Old Testament hopes in the Messiah were found in Jesus. Saul was proving that Jesus was the Messiah who would speak God's word to God's people, that he would minister as our great high priest, and that he would defend us as our king. Saul was beginning to show that not one word of all of the Lord's promises concerning the Savior, the Messiah, and the Old Testament have failed, but have found their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved to serve in this way too. Christian, you are called to serve the Lord Jesus in this way too. You are called to proclaim Jesus and to prove from the Scriptures that He is the Christ. We're called to be Jesus' disciples who go, out more, who go out and make more disciples who trust in Jesus. And the way to do that is by proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God and proving that Jesus is the Christ. Luke is sure to communicate there in verse 22 that Saul was increasing in strength. Saul was growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was growing as a Christian and in his ability to speak about Jesus. This is all something that we should long for and all something we should labor for. We should desire to grow in our ability to speak of Jesus. Christian, are you seeking to be strengthened in your faith and in your ability to proclaim and prove who Jesus is? Saul was no doubt helped by the Holy Spirit, and so are you. The means that God used to grow and strengthen Saul are the means that are available to you. Uh, Saul had God's Spirit. You have God's Spirit. Saul had God's Word. You have God's Word. Give yourself to humbly searching the Scriptures and give yourself to the practice of proclaiming and proving that Jesus is the Christ. As you read your Bible, maybe, maybe make it a point to meditate on how does this passage point to Jesus or what in this passage reveals the character of Jesus. That will help you to be able to share that later on with others. Notice that Saul serves. He, he served Jesus wherever he went. He served in Damascus. And after that, he served in Jerusalem. And like Saul, our posture should be to serve Jesus wherever he go, wherever we go, and wherever he sends us. So if you've arrived here this morning at Arlington Baptist Church and you're, you're, you're wanting and desiring to, to join this church, your posture toward this church family should, should not be, what can these people do for me? But what, by God's grace, can I do for God's people how can I serve the body of Christ here? And the same is true for those who leave this body. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to have the posture of service should the Lord move you away from this place. Ask the leadership of the church that you go to, what are the needs here? How can I serve here? And then serve 
in the ways that they share. If they need you to cut the grass or take out the trash or change diapers or wash dishes or scrub toilets, then do that joyfully and for the glory of God. The posture of the Christian life should be one of humble service. Saul served wherever he went. We're told there in verse 28 that he served by preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. And verse 29 is especially delicious. Saul disputed with the Hellenists. Do you remember the last person that Luke mentioned in the book of Acts who disputed the Hellenists? It was Stephen. It was Stephen. It's as if Saul is picking up where Stephen left off. And if anything, this shows us that he truly was a changed man. This changed man was courageous for as soon as his service started, he, he suffered. He suffered too. Just as the Lord promised to Ananias in verse 15. If you look back up to verses 23 to 25, you'll notice that Saul was not welcomed in Damascus. Twice, Luke mentions verses 23 and 24, that the Jews in Damascus, they wanted to kill him. They hatched a plot, and Saul narrowly escaped by being let down in a basket outside the city wall. Saul was greeted with the same kind of suffering in Jerusalem. If you look down to verse 29, and you'll see that the Hellenists who killed Stephen wanted to kill Saul. And so for his safety... He was sent out of Damascus. He was sent out of Jerusalem. And I would just note here that escaping persecution is not always wrong. Escaping persecution is not always wrong. Saul twice left persecution in our passage. It was part of God's larger purpose, according to verse 15, to have Saul carry Jesus' name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, now is not the time for Saul to die in Jerusalem or Damascus. And so it was fine for him to flee. That choice regularly comes upon Christians in a persecuted context. And it is not necessarily wrong for Christians to flee. It might be right to stay, and it might be right to go. Believers should pray for wisdom and seek counsel from church leadership in making such a choice. Should I stay? Should I go? Clearly the leaders in Jerusalem judged it good, right, and wise for Saul to head off to Caesarea and then off to Tarsus. You can be sure that Saul wasn't escaping suffering. This suffering was only the beginning of suffering in, Paul, in Saul's life. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 24 to 28, Saul gives something of a list of the sufferings that he had experienced up to that point. Listen to how Saul suffered throughout the course of life, his life. He wrote, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Saul, he suffered much for the sake of Jesus' name. But do you know why Saul was willing to suffer so much for the sake of the Savior? Why would Saul be willing to suffer so much for the sake of the Savior? Why would you be willing to suffer so much for the sake of the Savior? Saul was willing because the Savior suffered so much for him. Saul loved Jesus so much because he had been forgiven of so much. Christian, in your service to Jesus, you might be called to suffer. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus said to his disciples, 
Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, we read this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Saul, Paul, writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christian, suffering is not outside the realm of possibility for you. In fact, it might be more than a probability for you. The only way that you can bear suffering for Jesus is if you remember how much Jesus suffered for you and for your salvation. Christian, remember how much you've been loved by Christ. Remember how much you've been forgiven by Christ. Christ's suffering are the only thing that will strengthen and sustain us in our sufferings for Him. Saul, he suffered at the hands of unbelievers. But he also suffered at the hands of believers. Did you see that in our text? Did you notice that he suffered the fear of Ananias? Remember, Ananias was afraid of Saul given his violent history. And then the saints of Jerusalem were even afraid of him. Right? Verse 26 is almost comical. Acts chapter 9, verse 26, you see it there. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, in our day and age, if somebody comes to our church, we're excited that they want to join the church. But here's Saul. It's like, I'm, I'm trying to be a part of you people. What is the problem here? Well, they, they, they're not having any of it, right? They don't believe he's a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Now, we can sympathize with these saints, right? Conversions are sometimes hard to believe. I mean, imagine how difficult it would be for many of us to believe that Richard Levine or Levine was converted by the Lord Jesus. Richard Levine, if you don't know, is the Assistant Secretary of Health, and he currently goes by the name of Rachel Levine. In rebellion against the Lord Jesus and the body that Jesus gave to him, Richard is trying to transition from being a man to being a woman. Richard has publicly supported many policies which seek to suppress the truth of God's created order. Richard has supported policies which, if seized upon, could harm God's church. But what if the Lord saved Richard and said of Richard what Jesus said of Saul? What if the Lord said, Arlington Baptist Church, Richard now belongs to me. I have saved him and you are to call him brother and welcome him. I want you to welcome him in and receive him as part of my family. There might be some natural suspicions. Sometimes there might be some sinful ones. We can imagine this difficulty for the church in Jerusalem. I mean, we, we might love to receive the wealthy and well put together into our church, but what about notorious and scandalous sinners? What about the poor and the pitiful and the prostitutes? What about sinners with a past and sinners even with a present? What about Jerusalem sinners, as John Bunyan would call them? Are we ready to believe that God can save the kind of people who could put the Messiah to death? Are we ready to believe that God can save the kind of people who would put Stephen to death? Are we ready to believe that God can save enemies like Saul? We better be ready because that's exactly who we are. What does it say about our belief in God's saving and sanctifying power if we refuse to receive men like Saul into our church? What does it say about our own self-righteousness if we refuse to receive men like Saul into our church.
We need men like Barnabas in our church. We need to be men like Barnabas in our church. It's why you as a Christian need to get to go. No visitors here. Have visitors over to your home. Go out for a cup of coffee with them. Have lunch with them and hear about how they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and how he's been at work in their lives. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, but the elders of ABC tried to do what Barnabas did for Saul in the life of our congregation. Right? We, we meet with uh, prospective members, people who want to join the church. We have membership interviews. We, we hear their testimonies and then we bring them before the congregation and we vouch for them like Barnabas vouched for Saul. For those of you who are, are getting ready to join ABC, I'm not saying that you're suspect, okay? But what I am saying is that this is a good and right thing for the elders of ABC to do, to, to hear your testimony, to stand on your behalf before the congregation to say, brothers and sisters, from all that we can tell, God, our God, has been mightily and savingly at work in the lives of these candidates for membership. And it's our joy to encourage you to receive these brothers and sisters into the membership of our church family. That's what we're trying to do with our membership process, just to be like Barnabas in that regard. Saul, he suffered rejection and misunderstanding from believers. Sometimes the church doesn't get things quite right. Sometimes we fail to believe the sovereign power of God and salvation. But let's all aim to be just a bit more like Barnabas, that great encourager in the faith who, who clearly discerned that God does save his enemies and call them into his service. God saves his enemies and calls us into his service for the spread of the gospel. And that's what I want us to think about as we conclude. We should especially in this meditate on verse 31. Do you see what verse 31 says there? Luke writes, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is one of um, Luke's many summary verses. Uh, Luke has several of these kinds of summary verses throughout the book of Acts. They tend to kind of demarcate, mark out major sections of Acts. In chapter 1, uh, just, just think, right, how far the gospel has come, how far it's spread at this point. In chapter 1, the good news of Jesus hadn't gone anywhere. But now, by the time we get to Acts chapter 9, verse 31, the good news that God saves his enemies through his son is spread throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And isn't it amazing that the church has peace? In persecution, the church has peace, right? People there in Jerusalem, they still want to kill Saul. People in Damascus, they want to get after him. Think of this, dear Christian. In persecution, the church can have peace. And that's because peace is not dependent upon our present circumstances. God's people can be under pressure and still have peace. We can be under pressure and at peace because we know that God reigns on the throne. We can be under pressure and at peace because we know that God is in sovereign control of all things. He's working all things together for the good of his people and for the glory of Jesus. The church, as we see here in our text, can even be under pressure and prosper. The church, Luke tells us, was being built up. Right? The implication is that God was doing the building. What was it that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18? He said, I will build my church. He's building it in the strangest and most wonderful ways, isn't he? He, he, who would have thought 
that he would build his church by saving enemies and making them his servants and making that servant one of the most famous preachers of the gospel in the New Testament. It's glorious, really. And consider how the church is said to be walking in the fear of the Lord. We need more of this in our lives, I think. When you think about this, when you walk in the fear of the Lord, when you make that your path and practice, you fear God above all else, there's no room for the fear of man. These dear saints grasp that. They feared the Lord Jesus above all. They walked in the fear of the Lord. They were grateful for the salvation they knew in Jesus. And they served at His command regardless of the cost. Brothers and sisters, pray for our church to walk in the fear of the Lord above all else. Though all around our souls may give way, pray that Jesus would remain all of our hope and stay. The Holy Spirit had comforted them and multiplied them. The reality is that everything that has been going on in the life of the church, from its perseverance through persecution to peace and unity amid trouble and turbulence to its growth and multiplication, all of this came from God's hand. That's what we're meant to see in verse 31, that God is is at work in all of this, that he's the one pushing everything forward and spreading his gospel. Pray, pray that God would give us peace, build us up, cause us to walk in the fear of the Lord Jesus and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiply His saints. Dear Christian, rejoice in what God has done, in what God is doing and yet will do in your life and in the life of our church. God saves enemies like Ender, like Saul, like me, like you. God was, God is saving sinners. He is making them His servants. And he's spreading his gospel all for the glory of his name. Let's give him thanks and praise for that now together in prayer. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.